The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization in Memphis, Tennessee, and The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal legal system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Today, we're really excited to talk with Kelly Henry. Uh, Kelly is uh, the Supervisory Assistant Public Defender in Nashville, Tennessee, Uh, but she's been representing people facing the death penalty in this state for most of her career. Uh, Most recently, she's working on the case of a man named Purvis Payne, who is facing execution on December 3rd. His case came out of Shelby County in the late 80s. Um, Kelly has uh, incredible experience uh, working with men and women on death row, and we're really excited to share our conversation with her today. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us uh, for a a little bit to talk about the important work you do. Uh, And just to get started, I, you know, I know a lot about you and maybe some of the listeners know a lot about you, but I wonder what, if you were standing at Starbucks and you were waiting for your order uh, and someone next to you struck up a conversation and and asked what you did for a living, what would you tell them? Um, My stock answer is that I am a civil rights attorney, um, which is what I believe my work is about. I'm fighting for the constitutional rights of my clients and I'm fighting for the constitution. Um, I, I, it sounds funny and cheesy, (laughs) but I really, um, I really love the constitution. I mean, I fell in love with it as a student and I believe that the work that I do and, and others like me and the work that the, uh, the folks on the ground, the grassroots organizers are doing, we're all, protecting the constitution we grew up believing in. Um, and we want to make it a reality. Um, yeah. And then, then the person at Starbucks probably walks, walks out the door, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I, and that's a great answer. So tell us what that has looked like for you over the last 20 years, um, day to day. Obviously you defend people who are facing capital punishment in the state of Tennessee. What, what does, how does that fit within that answer? I defend the Constitution. Tell us uh, a little, give us more detail. Sure. So I um, actually started representing um, folks on death row as a law student in Missouri in 1989. So I have been around this um, area of the law for 31 years now. Um, and, you know, when the government is involved in incarcerating its citizens or in the case of capital punishment, actually taking the life of the citizens. That is the most solemn duty that our government can have. And quite frankly, I don't think that the government is up to the task to make that decision. But, you know, when I get into the, I started out as a trial lawyer. So mm-hmm. I did, um, you know, I did capital trials. And what I learned from that is that the people who end up on death row are not the worst of the worst. They end up on death row because they had the worst lawyer or because the system um, was so stacked against them from a resource perspective, 
um, as well as, you know, the, the prosecutorial misconduct that we see in so many of these cases. Yeah. You don't get the worst of the worst. You, you get the ones who, um, who got stuck with the lawyer who didn't have the resources or the lawyer who was burned out or the lawyer who frankly just didn't care and was there for a paycheck. We see that a- across these cases. Um, and I, I was a state trial attorney in a capital unit that was funded. So, you know, most of my clients ended up with sentences less than death. I had one client who received the death penalty and was ultimately executed in Missouri. And that was my very first capital trial. I third chaired it. And I will tell you that he did not get a fair trial. Yeah, He absolutely did not. Um, but I know the difference between what good lawyering looks like and what it doesn't. So I, when I started doing post-conviction work, that was um, initially in Arizona in 1997. And what I do is, you know, a, a client comes into our office at the federal level and he's already, you know, his conviction has already been stamped, right? There's a story that comes along with the case that, you know, usually has nothing to do with reality or what actually happened, but it's what's in the printed opinion about the case. And our job is to look beyond that and to um, reinvestigate the case from the beginning. And I like to think of it as if I'm the trial lawyer and this file landed on my desk, how would I approach it? And, mm-hmm. and that's what we do. And that's what my team does. And I'm very lucky to have a team. Um, we have in my office um, eight lawyers besides myself. We have um, six investigators and four paralegals and um, an assistant paralegal and an, an administrative assistant. So there's a lot of people um, working with me, helping me which is also important. You have to have a team. You cannot yeah. do this stuff by yourself. Yeah. I want to go um, back to that uh, that part about, um, I mean, what I heard was the arbitrary nature of capital punishment. What you said was um, they're not the worst of the worst. They're the people who had you know, poor uh, lawyers, very little in the way of resources to defend themselves. Uh, race plays a role in this. What are some of the other, um, talk about the arbitrary nature of the death penalty. One, one of the uh, one of the, to me, the most resonant criticisms of it is that, you know, one crime in one part of the, even the state can result in this sentence and the same crime in another part of the state results in, in, a, de- in a death sentence. What are some other ways that the, the death penalty is, is arbitrary that you've seen in your work? Oh, it starts with the charging decision, right? And so what you're talking about in terms of geographic disparity as well as racial disparity has to do with the political whims of the prosecutor who decides whether or not they're going to seek the death penalty to begin with. And if you're in a jurisdiction where um, you feel like it's politically to your advantage to seek the death penalty, then you do. And it doesn't have anything to do with justice. It has to do with getting reelected. So in the state of Tennessee, you know, really, as far as people who've actually been executed or actually had sustained death sentences, we see that, you know, roughly half have come from Shelby County. So you have the rest of the state paying for the political whim of whoever is sitting in that Shelby County DA's office at the time. And, you know, that's a a machine that goes back to to Stanton and back to the, back to the eighties, right? Right, right. And I mean, it's just really unfortunate. And But even if you look in the in the 21st century in cases that have come out of Shelby County and you know, death sentences in Tennessee have dropped dramatically in the 21st century. 
the lawyering has gotten better. Um, and, you know, with life without parole as an option, even though, you know, we could talk about that, but um, with life without parole as an option, juries don't impose the death penalty as much, except in Shelby County. And in Shelby County, the new death sentences in the 21st century, like not the ones where there have been retrials, but new death sentences, all are on African Americans. Wow. Wow. And, and, and you say, you know, perhaps trying to be kind yourself, that it goes back to Stanton, you know, and, and that we haven't had a lot of, uh, you know, death sentences out of Shelby County in the, in the recent past. But but you, I mean, we're recording this the day after you were here in court and just a few weeks after you were here in court arguing. And and the current district attorney's office, I mean, I, this may not be a question because I'm, you may not want to answer it, but the current district attorney's office is is battling your efforts in the Purvis Pain case, your your team's efforts in the Purvis Pain case to test evidence that has not previously been tested for DNA. And so while there may not be... Um, death sentences coming down as quickly and as often as they used to, uh, this office, which, I, I mean, I, I'm right, that, that they still have a lot of uh, influence over whether uh, appeals uh, are successful and whether, you know, the truth ultimately comes out, uh, is still fighting it. Is that correct? Can you speak to that? Um, the Shelby County DA's office did fight us for the testing. Um, to their credit, yesterday after they reviewed Judge Skane's thorough and detailed um, opinion granting us DNA, they've dropped their opposition. So they will not be appealing Judge Skane's decision and are going to allow the testing to go through. And, you know, I think that was, a, you know, obviously uh, the right legal choice because Judge Skane's opinion is really unassailable. Um, and, you know, we can then get a result within 60 days. Yeah. But yes, yes. I mean, and, and they're an outlier in opposing DNA testing. You know, I think more and more DAs um, in other jurisdictions are developing con- you know, conviction integrity right. units, right. you know, stuff like that. And, and what do you attribute that to? I don't want to stay on the Shelby County DA's office too long, but what do you attribute that um, that obstinance is the word that comes to my mind to? Like, what what is what is in it for them? I guess what's the incentive that is causing them to to be an outlier on on things like DNA testing uh, in, in a closed case? You know, I mean, I can't get into the heads of <laughs> the people who work there. I, I mean, I just feel like there's a culture of death huh. in Shelby County, you know, and there hasn't been a political price to pay. And in fact, it you know goes along with you know a law and order sort of mentality. And if you can continue to get away with it and, and use these cases as a, a springboard, then they're going to because you know my clients are not politically popular. They don't have a constituency. Yeah. But now what we're seeing is this strong coalition of um, community organizers and you know Just City and you know the Ben F. Jones chapter of the National Bar Association, um, Tennessee Ca- Black Caucus of State Legislators, Hundred Black Men, NAACP. I mean, a strong coalition yeah. of supporters who've looked at Purvis's case and said, "No, this is wrong." Yeah, that's that. It is very exciting, and we're really happy to to be playing a part, a small part in that uh, in that coalition, and, and with the leadership of Joy Thornton, who works in our office and is um, working with Tennesseans for alternatives to the death penalty. Um, we're really happy she's to be. Amazing. Yeah, she's but, great. We're happy to be a part of that. I want to talk. You've you you said it earlier uh, when you were 
you know, t- talking about uh, the, the folks you represent. And I think you used the term the worst of the worst, or perhaps I'm uh, recalling that from the article in the Nashville scene that I read last night. But just a second ago, you said, you know, our clients aren't, your clients aren't politically popular. And there's this anecdote from that Nashville scene story, which I'll post in the in the link to this episode, where you talk about your father, um, uh, or or is that is that Amy Harwell? I'm I'm, I'm mixing Amy Harwell's That's, father. Yeah, it's Amy's yeah, yeah. So your 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 partner and and colleague in this work, Amy Harwell, talked about uh, her father saying about one of his clients. He was an attorney as well. He's a good man. He's just a thief, and and it caused you know your friend Amy to have to wrestle with this idea, and and it goes to this uh, you know these things that you you're saying about our our clients not being you know not having political capital, not having uh, any sort of um, you know, purchase really to, to fight back. And, um, how do you reconcile that, that, that sentiment that, that she talks about in this article about, you know, people on death row, um, you know, as Brian Stevens would say, you're not always a murderer, right? If you commit murder, you're not a murderer. What, where do you come down on that? And how do you work through that yourself? So, you know, I have found grace on death row when I go and I meet my clients. And like I said, they come in with a story stamped on their their case about what you know allegedly happened, as opposed to what really happened. And so I, you know, I can read a, an opinion and, and feel outrage, um, and think I'm ah, I'm not going to like this guy. And then you know you go out there and you sit with this man, who's not the man who got convicted, right? He's he's a completely different person now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know whether drug abuse was an issue or you know, mental illness, you know being able to get treatment, you know, be older, they're just a different human being. And, you know, some of the most meaningful conversations that I have had have been with, you know, men on death row and, and, and women. And it's powerful, you know, to see God's grace at work in my clients. Uh, you know, I have unfortunately um, had the occasion to be the last lawyer for mm-hmm. some men in Tennessee who've been executed. And, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me the ways in which they are wanting to take care of us Yeah. at the end, you know, that they want to make it easier for us, easier on the guards who are going to murder them, right? Um, and yet they they are the ones who show poise and and you really just embody God's mercy. Give us an example of that poise and of something that you've seen one of your clients do near the end to, to make that, make that possible for guards and for you and your team. So I'll try to do that without um, tearing up. <laughs> the scene article talks about, I'm a, I'm a big crybaby. Yeah. Um, well, you're talking to another big crybaby, so <laughs> I'll try not to tear up as well. Um, but you know, an example um, that you know, comes to mind immediately was, um, when Ed Zagorski was, um, you know, on de- well, it was during the extraction, right? They call it the extraction team that extracts them from this, uh, the cell on death watch to take them into the chamber. And so the, you know, the guards approach, the warden is with them. And before they're about to open the, the cell door to, to rush in and, um, and restrain him, he said, I just don't want any of you all to feel bad about what's about to happen. He said that out loud. Out loud to them. I could hear it. Hmm. 
um, you know, I know and you know you're just doing your job and I don't want you all to, to feel any guilt about any of this. Yeah. So like he granted them absolution. Wow. Yeah. You know? Um, and then they opened the cell doors and they rushed in and they restrained him and marched him into the electric chair. Yeah. Um, and, and are you there for that? I, I don't, I don't want to get into details like that too much, but are you, are you witnessing that as, as his attorney? Are you able to be there? This is an attorney. I'm fascinated by that. We had to litigate that um, a long time ago in, in Robert Cohen, Philip Workman's case. But yes, we have a right to be present and um, just to protect our clients' rights, to make yeah. sure that everyone's you know, doing what they're supposed to do. So for example, with the electric chair, you want to make sure that they're actually using the right type of sponge and that they're making sure the sponge is wet enough. Wow. Yeah. Um, because, you know, at that point, my job is to make sure they don't torture him any more than I know they're going to be torturing him. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm interested in your take. I've had Stephen Hale on the show and, of course, um, have had conversations about, you know, Tennessee's recent past with the death penalty with a lot of people. And I'm just really interested to hear your take on why now for Tennessee? I mean, folks who listen to this podcast and follow Just City know that, you know, the state of Tennessee is is really on an unprecedented schedule right now of executions over the last, I guess, two years now, after going nearly a decade, I think, without an execution. And, um, and you what is why? Like I, I, I've not gotten a satisfactory answer for me, Josh Spickler. Maybe there's not one. But what do you say to that question? You, you would know more than anyone, I think. You know, I think it's a a, a change in leadership at the at um, the gubernatorial level, at the executive level, the the attorney general, state attorney general's office. Where both, both. Yeah. I think uh, you know, change of leadership in um in political will. Um, you know, it, obviously for. The answer that you'll get, I think, from the other side is that these cases were on hold because of lethal injection litigation. And and to some extent, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have been litigating the method of execution in Tennessee since really 2007. And, and the other side will say, well, we you know, they've lost every single time. And my response to that will be every single time you've changed the protocol as a result of our litigation. Which... Right. Would indicate a win. <laughs> right. I mean, so we, we pointed out something that was wrong and, and then you had to go in and fix it, um, which again gets back to human beings not being, you know, able to, to do this, right? When you're thinking about taking someone's life and people are sitting in a room coming up with right. a protocol, um, you know, that's just not what we do. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but I also believe that you know, there's, there's just been a, a change um, in terms of wanting to, to push these cases through. I don't know why, because I frankly think there's a disconnect between that and what your average Tennessean yeah. cares about. Yeah, you know? that would be my follow-up question. Like, what's the incentive? Like, what is the what is the value in, in doing that for the, the people who are making the decision? And now, correct me if I'm wrong, the legislature has, has dabbled in this some, but they haven't done anything that has really, you know, contributed to the scheduling, right? I mean, I think the legislator, some of the legislatures have expressed um, discontent with the cases not moving quickly enough. So in 2015, you had the passage of the Capital Punishment Enforcement Act, and that was meant to um, basically get around the, the challenges to the lethal injection protocol and reinstated the electric, the electric chair as a possible method of execution, even if the defendant didn't choose it. Now, we haven't 
had that happen yet. Um, and of course, we immediately challenged that law, which is mm-hmm. quite unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional, mm-hmm. really. Is. And, and if we ever have to uh, to litigate that, I'm certain that we will be successful in, in that um, challenge. But mm-hmm. it reflected at least the um, opinions of some legislators who were becoming fed up with there not being any executions. <laughs> but yeah. you know, again, rhetorically, it's really easy to to make those arguments and there's not a lot of um you're not going to take a hit politically right right there's no <laughs> there's no downside do for them right? right but but the reality is i mean and, and i am an adopted tennessean and i love this state and if you look at people's views about the death penalty the citizenry yeah and if you look at what jurors do tennessee has never been as bloodthirsty as its southern counterparts. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and so, you know, I just don't feel like what's happening is reflective of your average citizen. Right. And sure, there, there are people who do want to see right um, more executions, but they're the minority. They're not yeah, the sentiment has definitely changed. And just for perspective, I, I saw this yesterday that there are three executions scheduled, I, th- I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, for the rest of 2020. Um, two of them are with the federal in the federal system and the other, the only state with a scheduled execution left this year is Tennessee. And it's, um, and we really are becoming an outlier, you know, even after all the years of Texas and I think Florida probably leading, uh, t- Tennessee has sort of taken over. It, it seems to me, is that accurate? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And it, and it is very frustrating. I'm, I don't have to tell you that. I want to shift a little bit in, into something, you know, you talked about telling your clients stories and I, I'm going to reference this Nashville scene story one more time because there's this quote in here from you and I'm going to read it to you, which I know you love it when people read quotes back to you. Uh, and then maybe we can move into the Purvis Payne case, a bit, you know, jumping off from this quote. You, you say, learning about their families, that would be your clients, and learning about the ways in which trauma, hunger, poverty, racism, systemic dysfunction caused this horrible thing in their life to happen. In many ways, we get really frustrated because because we feel like we have so much to offer politicians, people in the public eye. Um, and I think you're talking about offering them solutions. You really want to stop murder, you say? You really want to deter people? You really want to solve crime? Then solve education, solve poverty, solve trauma, so- solve child abuse. And you're working on this case um, that I think um, will probably allow you to speak to some of that. Tell us a- about Purvis Payne and how he came to, to know you and-, and what's going on in his case. Sure. Uh, and, you know, Purvis's family is so different, right, from a lot of my other clients' families because he, I, I went into the case to, to find that history of trauma, right? When I, I got on his case um, and took over as lead counsel mm-hmm. um, almost a year ago um, when his previous legal team um, had left the office. And I had thought, well, okay, what what's the story? How did this guy come to be um, the person who would commit this horrible murder? And none of the stuff it's not that those things. to see is not there, right? And it's because, oh, my God, he didn't do it, right? <laughs> he, um, did, he didn't commit the crime. Right. So, I mean, I would normally, it, it, for someone who would to commit this crime, I would expect to see um, a family that had substance abuse, that had physical abuse, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. May, maybe there was sexual abuse. None of that is in this case. In fact, uh, what I have... I have come to know and love this family so much. Um, And what we have is a family that was living according to what society demanded of them. 
you know, Superintendent Payne was, you know, he's now superintendent, but he was an elder in the Church of God in Christ. He lived his life in the spirit of Christianity. He worked hard with his painting company. He built his house from the ground up. This is a family who did not take handouts. Mm -hmm. This is a family who had um, love and discipline and, you know, wrap their arms around their children. Um, Mrs. Payne was, you know, a childcare provider. This is not the family that you would expect right. in a case such as, case such as this. Um, and I, I, I say this a lot about this case, and I've said it to um, his sister, Rolanda, I, um, and to Carl, I, I, his, his dad. I so regret not having had the opportunity to meet Purvis's mom. Um, but I, I try and I can't ever obviously know what it's like to be a, a mother um, in, you know, the post, allegedly post Jim Crow South, um, an African-American woman with an African-American son. But I try um, to picture and feel how alone she must have felt that night at the police station when she was begging the police to take, you know, take a blood sample, see if he's on drugs. You think he did this? you know, see if he's taking drugs Yeah, and they refused to do it. And that was the destruction of exculpatory evidence because you know what? He wasn't on drugs and they knew that because let me tell you what, the cops are going to take your blood if they think you're on drugs and it's a murder case, right? Cause they're going to want to prove it. So not taking his blood, you know, tells you everything about what was going on there. Yeah. And, and you know, the system marginalized her and her husband and her family and Purvis with his intellectual disability, you know, so he had two strikes against him. He's black in the South in Shelby County and he's intellectually disabled. So he, he can't fight for himself and, yeah. and people just, you know, didn't listen to them. Yeah. You know, and, and that is so frustrating. And we can skip through the inevitable that this was in 1987. Is that correct? The, the, the murder happened in 1987. His trial was in 88. 88. And, you know, proceed to a trial where um, these stereotypes uh, of, of hypersexualized black men were used. The drug use, uh, the alleged drug use was, was, was referenced. He was convicted, sentenced to death. Um, he, he is scheduled for execution currently on December 3rd. We talked already about, about the, the, the win in court yesterday. Um, What's next with him and what can folks listening do? What do you expect to, to know in the next uh, few weeks for, for about Purvis Payne's case? So what's next is um, you know, we wait for the test results. Um, they should be, the, the evidence should be arriving any moment in California. Mm -hmm. um, we shift a priority overnight. Thanks to FedEx. Thanks to FedEx. <laughs> um, and yeah, we, we wait those results and we know that there's a possibility we're not going to get any, any new information. That's possible. But it's also possible that we're going to find the DNA of the, of the perpetrator. And that will be um, you know, something that will be incredibly exciting. Um, and we will be able to you know, get him back into court if, if that happens in, um, with a new challenge. In the meantime, it's important that we build on the momentum that we've been able to um, establish over the last, you know, few weeks 
Yeah. People are starting to learn about this case. Yeah. Um, and I think the moment is right for people to finally understand the ways in which systemic bias, racial bias, implicit bias, right? Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I have really um, come to understand on a more deep level, the ways in which, you know, well-meaning, liberal, quote unquote, um, white people and their implicit bias has done a disservice to Mr. Payne and his family over the years. And it's something that we have to be conscious of. And I think we know more and we're, as a society, many of us are more open to receiving that message. And, you know, it's a message of understanding your bias in order to overcome it, but also looking at ways in which that happened here because those racial stereotypes were used to justify a conclusion that Purvis Payne did this. I mean, in Tom Henderson, the, the notorious right, prosecutor right. who Very. prosecuted Purvis, you know, in post-conviction, he said, yeah, we were looking for a motive because it just didn't make sense. Wow. It just didn't make sense. And so, you know, when they came up with this alleged positive test for cocaine on a piece of paper that Purvis had picked up um, from the stairs, and it, we're talking traces of cocaine, which, you know, it, you take your dollar bill out of your pocket. It's got traces of cocaine. Yeah. But he's like, that when that happened, it all fell together. Well, how about you step back and say, if it doesn't make sense that he would do this, then maybe he's telling the truth and he didn't do it. Right. But instead, because they went to the conclusion that he did it, then they created this story to make their conclusion that he did it make sense. Because we as human beings need to make meaning out of everything. And when it, when we can't make meaning, then something is wrong with our story. And it's you know one of two things. Either he did it, and so we have to make this motive up, or he's innocent. Yeah. You know, and they just couldn't go there. They right, no. And they really so still the whole, can't. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and this was the age of the super predator. I mean, that was... You know, uh, late eighties. Yeah. 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 I mean, you've seen all the, all the movies, um, the 13th and others. Yeah. You know, it, it was something that people bought back then and, and we know better right now. Right. We, so we've spent most most of our time on Purvis Payne's case talking about uh, his actual innocence, but there is this intellectual disability component to this, where um, you know the Supreme Court has has talked about this. So that's a, a second really whole issue in this particular case. Speak to that real quick, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So you know, in two thousand and two, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that there people with intellectual disability have a special risk for wrongful execution, and so. They held that this, you know, our constitution forbids the execution of the intellectually disabled, forbids it, right? It's illegal. Yeah. But the problem is, in order to, you know, quote unquote qualify, you have to be adjudicated intellectually disabled. Well, if you can't get into court, you can't be adjudicated. And that's where Purvis's case lies. He can't get into court, even though factually he is intellectually disabled. Um, we are grateful that our partners at the Tennessee Black Caucus for State Legislators have taken up this cause. And Representative Hardaway at the press conference um, on August 31st mm -hmm. announced that the Black Caucus will lead the charge to patch this procedural hole in Tennessee law 
Unfortunately, that can't happen before December the 3rd. Right. Because the legislative so, session doesn't start until January. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so they are joining with us in the call for, um, you know, a reprieve or clemency. And the Tennessee Supreme Court in Purvis's case has said that the state of Tennessee has no interest in the execution of a person who is intellectually disabled. And if Purvis Payne is intellectually disabled, the state of Tennessee has no interest in his execution hmm. because it violates the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. And yet here we are with the December 3rd execution date. Yeah. Wow. Well, it is uh, it is a, a case that's gained a little momentum coming off of a, a very good decision yesterday by Judge Paul Skane. Um, congratulations on that. Um, you know, you started uh, the podcast, the interview, talking about how much you love the Constitution. It's come up a few times during our conversation. Um, and I'm just struck by the assault, frankly, on not just portions of the Constitution that are, are relevant to the work that you do, uh, anti-death penalty work that you do, but just all over the place. I mean, I, you know, this is not a podcast about national politics, but I wonder what you think about the future of the Constitution. As a big fan, as a lover of the Constitution, a self, self-proclaimed lover of the Constitution, where are we going with this uh, <laughs> with this document and this democracy and how, and you know, I'm, I get discouraged, frankly, and I know a lot of, a lot of folks are. Where, where are you on that? You know, I am, unfortunately for me, maybe, an uh, eternal optimist. And <laughs> I even, think you have to be for you. <laughs> even in this really dark time, I, I was actually, I was talking with someone yesterday, and I don't have permission to say who they are, but um, who, who said, you know, thank you in 2020 in this dark time for bringing us this decision today, right? Like mm-hmm. Judge Skane's decision yesterday brings hope. Mm-hmm that things are not as dark as they seem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel that change is coming. Change is coming to Shelby County. Change is coming to the state of Tennessee. Yeah. And it, it doesn't come without hard work, but it, it comes through um, you know, the grassroots organizers. It comes from the legal community. It comes from the faith community. This belief that we have in the promise the promise of the Constitution, and I guess I should say that's—I I love the promise of the Constitution yeah, that's, that's as, a better, dy- huh? as a dynamic document that has the ability to welcome all of our citizens under its umbrella, even though it didn't at the time of the framing. But it has—it has that hope of freedom, and you know, I mean, I don't need to go all you know religious or anything, <laughs> but like, you know, the whole idea of you know treating your brother as you wish to be treated. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's part of what we are allowed under the promise of the U S constitution. And I think we're going to get there. Sometimes it has to get really dark, um, for people to become activated. Yeah. But you know, in in Tennessee, what we need is for people to vote. Right. I mean, I can't, (laughs) I can't, I, 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 um, I'm forbidden from talking partisan politics because I'm a federal employee. Of course. Right. But, um, People participating in their democracy and voting, that's what we need to have happen. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging to hear. That's encouraging to hear. And you kind of read my mind. I actually I would like to talk about faith if, if you're willing to. I mean, I, this is not a po- podcast about faith either, but there's a question that I've asked a lot of people on this uh, on this podcast um, from very different places and, and experiences. But um, is this idea of, of mercy um, in, in a lot of 
uh, faith traditions, and you just talked about it. And um, I like to ask the question, what role does mercy have to play in the criminal legal system? And that may seem like a, a silly question to ask someone who does what you do, but because the, you know, the, your obvious answer could be, well, just have it, right? <laughs> and stop yeah. executing people. But, but in, a, in a broader sense, what role do, should mercy play in a system that is, is seeking justice, that is seeking protection from victims and justice for victims in the same way that it's seeking fairness for those accused? How does mercy fit into that, in your opinion? Actually, mercy has everything to do with it. I mean, we, let's go back to the quote that you gave, uh, read back to me from the National Scene article. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the criminal legal system is all about harshness, if it's all about we're going to lock you up and throw away the key, we're going to take a child and say that this child's life is not worthy, you're never going to solve crime because that system doesn't work for impoverished people. And so what you have then is this increasing divide between the people who get caught up in the criminal legal system who are overwhelmingly poor, overwhelmingly from um, communities of color. And you can't tell them that the system is working for them when that system, you know, doesn't turn on the lights, doesn't put food in their stomach, doesn't offer them an education where they can become a doctor or a lawyer, um, where you know there are there's a real problem with there not being enough uh, lawyers of color in the criminal legal system. But part of that reason goes back to our educational system. Yeah. So if you if you can't um, get into law school because your high school and your you know your primary school didn't teach you, then you're never going to get those top legal jobs, or if you are a poor child of color who is, you know, incredibly gifted, at which there are many, many gifted um, lawyers of color who I would love to join us in, in what we do. But if you grow up and you graduate with, you know, a half million dollars in debt, you can't go work at a public defender's office. Right. You know, you, you've, you've got to go work for a, a big firm. And you know, I, I don't have any problem with that. People need to make money. But it's systemic. It starts with there not being a good enough education or those ch- children who go to school hungry. Right? You can't think, you can't learn if you're hungry. And one of the things I've, I, I used to um, train our receptionists about answering the phone. <laughs> and, you know, like that mom who calls and wants to talk to a lawyer, um, you don't know if, if the water company hadn't just cut off her water. Yeah. Or, you know, so she's she may be really upset with her son's lawyer, but, you know, her son is in prison and she can't help him and she can't figure out how to keep the lights on. To live in that type of trauma day in, day out, we're never going to solve the problem of crime. But if we start showing mercy and love and grace to our, you know, impoverished brothers and sisters, and we start saying, no, education is a constitutional right. And, you know, if we start paying teachers what we pay doctors and lawyers, then maybe, you know, we can start getting somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
that's a that's a great uh, a great sentiment. I mean, my friends and I were texting just yesterday, and I guess not to make this too personal, but about kindness and how how just simple. I mean, what you're describing to training your your receptionist is just kindness. And there's you know the popular quote about you know for everyone you meet is having is fighting a hard battle, right? Just so be kind because you don't know what that what's on the other end of that telephone. You don't know about the person that you meet in the street, and and kindness can just be. Um, be so powerful. Anyway, that was a little bit too sappy for me, <laughs> but uh, but you started it, Kelly. Um, yeah. I um, believe it. I believe it, I, and I do too. I do too. And I think I think a lot of a lot more people than we than we think um, believe it. And I think you know the work that you're doing is bringing us closer to where the people who believe that kindness is power, the people who who have a place for mercy. And, and our policies and our politics match up. Like you're bringing us closer to that reconciliation. And, and at Just City, that's absolutely what we're trying to do because I we're, I agree with you. I don't think this is the system that people want. This system is not serving those it claims to serve. Um, and so I thank you, Kelly, for the work that you're doing. And if there's anything um, that uh, listeners can do, this, this podcast will definitely be up uh, in the next few days. So the Purvis Pain case will still... Uh, be going on and we're building momentum. So what should folks know about Purvis Payne's case and how can they get involved? What do you, what is the legal team need from, from the community here in Shelby County, especially? So what we're asking people to do is first of all, go to PurvisPayne.org, sign the petition um, to be plugged in with all of our efforts. We're asking you to say his name, say his name on social media, say his name to your neighbors, say his name in your church and organizational groups, get the word out, help us build this support. Join um, Pastor Andre Johnson each Wednesday at the corner of Union and McLean in front of the Walgreens um, to show your support for Purvis and his family and just help us continue to build this momentum right to the governor. Let him know that you want him to grant clemency to Purvis Payne. Great. Well, we will be putting that message out as, as, as much and as often as we can from Just City. Um, Kelly, w- w- while we're sitting here, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up. It is Constitution Day. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> I certainly did. I did not. I did not know this. <laughs> so we're, we're, talking to not. A big, we're talking about the Constitution to a fan of the Constitution on Constitution Day. But here's the fun part about this, Kelly. The reason that I know this is because uh, I got a Twitter alert from the Shelby County District Attorney's office reminding me that it's Constitution Day. So that's the world. That's how things work. (laughs) But I find that hysterical. God has a sense of humor. Exactly. Well, happy Constitution Day, Kelly Henry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Josh. Happy Constitution Day. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye, Kelly. Thanks. That was Kelly Henry on the permanent record. You can find out more about the Purvis Payne case at purvispain.org. There's a petition there. We'd really love it if you could sign it and find out a little more about the case and how you can get involved. Special thanks to Rhodes student and Just City intern Isaac Segura for once again helping produce an episode of this podcast. As always, thanks to Carline Gilworth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis Check out some of their uh, other shows at theoamnetwork.com. 
Jeff Hewlett wrote and performs She Got Gone, which is the original theme music for the permanent record. Jeff's also been working during quarantine. Visit his Bandcamp page for some really great new songs that he's written and recorded uh, since the quarantine started. I'm Josh Spickler. This is the Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Catch up on our COVID-19 response at justcity.org slash COVID-19. We're doing all we can to get folks safely out of jail uh, so they can protect themselves from the virus. Make sure you're subscribing to the Permanent Record somewhere. Give us a rating, a review. It really helps us build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.